Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm your host, Lori Barkman, founder of Small.Big. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself a business transition Sherpa. My mission is guiding entrepreneurs on ways to build value in your business and then benefit by letting it go. On this show, we spotlight the theme of transitions, not only to reward you for your hard work, but also to ensure that you look back on your succession without regret. Catch all the episodes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to visit SuccessionStories.com to sign up for our newsletter. Here's to your success. For many business owners, selling your company is typically a once-in-a-lifetime transaction. But it's hard to know how it all works until you're in it. That's why I invited veteran M&A and boutique investment banker Dave Eichenlaub from Confluence Advisors onto the show. We talked about deal dynamics and what makes a business ready for sale. We explored what can make or sink a deal and the role of trusted advisors to help bring it all together. Selling your company is a significant life-changing event. Listen in to learn more about why pre-planning to get your business ready for sale makes you more likely to generate the best value and have a successful generational wealth transfer. Dave Eichenlaub, thank you so much for joining me on Succession Stories today. I'm excited to have you here. You are someone who's going to help us understand the world of mergers and acquisitions, M&A, and investment banking. There's probably some people listening who kind of know what those things are, but don't know a whole lot about it. So that's why I invited you on the show, because I know you're going to help us to have a great conversation for buyers and sellers alike. So welcome. Lori, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today and looking forward to the session today. Awesome. Thanks. Why don't we start by you telling us about you? What's your story? What's your background? How did you get involved in mergers and acquisitions and investment banking? Great. So Lori, my background is in finance and accounting. I worked many years ago as a CPA for one of the big eight firms. I also, subsequent to that, I worked for a number of national and regional banks involved in uh, corporate lending. And I really found myself loving transactions. I guess I'm a deal junkie at heart. (laughs) So I took that background in corporate banking and accounting, and I, I pivoted into working for a mergers and acquisitions boutique. And that was really satisfying because I got to work more closely with these privately held family-owned businesses and these very important transitions that they undertake. Following that, I was able to pivot from that again and start my own firm, Confluence Advisors. We started the firm about 12 years ago, almost to the day, myself and three partners. And we're, we're still together today. And we started the firm, Lori, back in 2009. And if you recall, that was the Great Recession. Not a great time to start a business. (laughs) Not a great time to start a business. The the merger and acquisition market was in turmoil. And nonetheless, we started this firm. And we look back now, my partners and I, we say, "What, what were we thinking to start a firm during that time? It was very difficult but we're, we're very satisfied that we did. We're very happy. The firm has grown since then. We had a firm foundation and we've grown the firm very nicely. We're very thankful and gratified to have the many, you know, the dozens of, of clients we've worked with over the years. They've helped us to become really successful. 
we've learned so much in dealing with, with business owners, hearing their stories, helping them to undertake what's a very, very important and typically a once in a lifetime uh, transaction. So again, Confluence Advisors, we're, we're about 12 years old. We work with the privately held businesses, family-owned companies through important transitions, acquisitions, sale, or capital raising type services. That's a great overview. And the clients specifically, are they in certain industries or geography or size, either on the revenue side or employees, however you define size? Sure. Our client base varies. We're a generalist firm, which means we work with companies in a lot of different industries. We've worked with manufacturing businesses, service companies, distribution type businesses, testing, inspection type companies. We generally work with companies that are 10 million of revenues in, in North, often 10 million to 100 million of revenues. These tend to be family owned businesses, sometimes second, third generation family owned sometimes owned by a group of investors or, or partners. We work with companies both locally here in Western Pennsylvania as well as nationally. We've closed transactions all over the country and, and we, we tend to do a fair amount of deals locally as well. Got you. So let's start with some definitions because sometimes people use definitions and terms and, and then we don't really know what that means. So would you call yourselves first and foremost an investment banking firm or an intermediary is another term I hear, a broker, right? What's the difference between those terms? So we would characterize ourselves as an investment bank boutique. We have five people in the firm. And so we're not a two or 300 person investment banking firm like you might see on Wall Street. And we're also not a, not a broker. I, I think that, that business brokers might work with smaller type companies. We are an intermediary though. We, we do work on behalf of buyers and sellers to help them go through these transitions. And again, that could be on the buy side. It could be representing sellers in a sale transaction or helping businesses to raise capital through very important transitions as well. So you've been in business about 12 years. Happy anniversary, by the way. That's awesome. <laughs> it's not easy to have business partners and you've had nice consistency there. So that's, that's great. So you've seen ups and downs. You started at a tough time. You started in the recession of 2009, obviously going through some challenges there. And then also in 2020, a very challenging year for a lot of people, a lot of companies. What deal dynamics did you and the firm observe during the pandemic? And how do you think that these dynamics are going to continue to play a role this year and possibly beyond? Uh, great question, Lori. So we've been through a number of business cycles over the years. And what happened in 2020 with the pandemic was different than other recessions, but there are a lot of similarities. So what we typically see, and I think back to the Great Recession of 2008, 9, and 10, Merger and acquisition activity is greatly impacted because uh, earnings of companies uh, is impacted. The financing markets freeze up. And we saw that with last year as well, with, with the pandemic. And some of the differences are the economy was going so strongly for so many years. And merger and advisor activity was rising over the years. Selling price multiples had been increasing, right? The economy was going gangbusters. Financing was very aggressive. Then all of a sudden, in March of last year, 
things came to a grinding halt. And one of the, the big impacts on the M&A environment is called buyer sentiment. So when buyers lose confidence, when buyers become risk adverse, it very much affects the M&A market. We saw that drastically. So we saw the market impacted from a number of different angles. Many, many companies, their earnings were adversely impacted. Otherwise, those some companies benefited from the pandemic, which we can, we can talk about a little bit later. The financing markets were impacted. Bank financing ground to a halt. Non-bank financing became much more difficult. And very importantly, buyer sentiment changed drastically. So buyers, when there's uncertainty in the market, buyers tend to get conservative. And this is very bad for the M&A market. So what we saw with the pandemic was a number of deals that have been in the works. You know, we ourselves had a couple of deals that were under letter of intent that we thought would, would have closed the first half of the year. And those deals were greatly impacted by what happened. Thankfully, both have closed subsequently, but they were delayed six to nine months, each of those deals. So when buyers see uncertainty, they pull back from the market. We actually had one transaction under letter of intent with a private equity buyer going into the pandemic. And in May, that buyer pulled out of the deal. They got scared. Think back to that time. It was a very scary time. No one knew what impact this pandemic might have on the economy, on business earnings. So this particular private equity firm pulled out of the deal. They wanted to focus more on their existing portfolio of businesses. And so we were able to scramble and find a strategic buyer to, to take their place and the, and the deal subsequently closed. But during the pandemic, the M&A activity almost ground to a halt for a while. There were very few new deals coming on the market. People weren't certain what was, what was going to happen. What we've seen since then, though, Lori, is, is a really a gradual improvement in, in the market in many different ways. So we've seen an improvement in company operating performance. We've seen a resurgence of confidence in the economy. We've seen people willing to take risks, that is, buyer willing to take risks again. And with that, we've seen the selling price multiples, you know, coming back to a more normalized level. We've seen a resurgence in deal activity. And in going into 2021, I, I think that the 2021 should be a very strong year for M&A activity overall. There's a couple of dynamics I wanted to hone in on there. Also going back to what you said at the beginning, which is these are privately held companies, many of whom you work with are family businesses, multiple generations. and what are some of the reasons why they either want to bring more capital, change the capital structure of the business, or why they're feeling ready to sell? I guess there's a general why, but then even more so, why now? Another great question. There are a number of dynamics related to that, to the answer to that question, Laurie. Typically, what we've seen after a recession, the business owner sentiment changes. And, and what that means is, and we've seen this through various cycles, a business goes into recession and it's very tough to manage a business through that. When we come out of a recession, the business owners often say, I don't want to do that again. I, don't want, I do not want to go through that again. So now I wish to sell. That's certainly a factor in a lot of these cases. Other in other cases, it may be something more specific. Maybe an owner is, is older 
and they don't have family members who want to take over the business. Maybe an owner sees that their, their business has done really well, the market is strong, which it is now again, and, and now they're gonna take this time to cash out. So there's a lot of dynamics uh, involved in that, certainly specific to the ownership structure, but also in terms of the, again, the sentiment of the uh, business owners as well. You talked about some of the clients you have manufacturing and where there's physical, you know, physical assets. And I don't know if you also deal with technology companies, but those are more, you know, digital intangible assets and both have value. Curious about the manufacturing side or a company that has these physical assets. When you're valuing a business, how do you look at that? Let's say hypothetically, there's a company that is 5 million in revenue, but maybe break even or you know less than 10% pre-tax income. So they're they're running a pretty narrow margin there. And yet they have capital assets that they've invested in, you know, in the physical sense of equipment and buildings and, and what have you. How do you take a look at that opportunity and give the business owner a sense of what a potential acquirer might look at in that sure. business? Sure. So Lori, most businesses will sell based on a multiple of earnings or EBITDA, right? So that, that's kind of the benchmark. That's the starting point that is typically used in the marketplace. And then other factors that we would look at is, is, is the business asset intensive or capital intensive? You know, one may argue that the, the value of a business is only worth the cash flow. And, and if it takes a lot of capital investment back in the business, that could be viewed as a value detractor. So, so think of a technology company. Technology companies that have high cash flow ratios, maybe high levels of recurring revenues, and maybe low levels of CapEx would trade for a higher multiple than say a manufacturing business that has you know, lower EBITDA margins and high capital requirements. So those are all factors uh, that, we, that we would look into. Certainly the asset base of a company is important uh, in valuation, but it's important to the sense of what cash flow will those asset, assets generate? And that's, that's the most important aspect. And when we see businesses that, you know, let's say have very high capital expenditure requirements and therefore very little free cash flow, well, those businesses will trade at a lower multiple. So we, we, like, um, we like businesses that have diversified or businesses that trade at higher multiples, I should say, tend to have diversified customer base, high margins, more of a recurring revenue if, if possible, and lower capital uh, requirements. Gotcha, gotcha. In thinking about capital options for companies and ways to raise capital, there's been a lot of discussion around SPACs. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that. I don't know if your firm gets involved or not, but just conceptually, what is a SPAC? And I think year over year, the percent of companies using SPACs as a, as a way to raise capital increased 30%. So it's, it's, it's in the news more and more. And I just wanted to touch on that quickly. Any experience that you have with SPACs? Sure. So SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And these are publicly traded uh, companies that will merge with a private company. And it's a way for that private company to go public. And the 
the dynamics of private companies versus public uh, changes over time. The, the, SPAC, um, the, the SPAC era, I should say, which is what we're in now, has really encouraged a lot of companies to go public and to trade on the public markets. In order to be a public company, you really should have a certain size and growth characteristics because it's expensive to be a public company. There are a lot of reporting requirements. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley required a lot of different, um, you know, the, the officers of that company to kind of certify that the financial statements are, are accurate. But it's been a great way for private companies to go public quickly uh, without, with by, by bypassing the, the IPO process and to really to, to ride the, the, the public companies and, and able to access capital, access more investors than the private companies. Typically, though, private companies have been pretty good, especially over time. The private markets have become pretty efficient, meaning the, the value of a private company versus the value of that same company if it were public, over time that has narrowed. Now, now the SPAC uh, era, again, has, I think it has maybe changed that. But over time, the private markets have become very efficient and have acted almost more like public companies with the ability from a valuation perspective and ability to raise capital, but a, a, certainly a private company doesn't have that liquidity feature that public companies have. Okay, gotcha. So let's talk about process, how this works. If I'm a buyer, whoever I am, I might be a private equity firm, I might be a strategic buyer, and I'm interested in, in looking at companies. And I'm, I've now found your firm and I've talked to you and I wanna hire you guys. What is the process that you go through to work with a buyer? Sure. When we look at the market, Laurie, there are, there are way, way more buyers than sellers. Okay, so consequently, it, it's, it's, it's more difficult to affect and close on an acquisition. When you, when you think of the buyer universe, and you, you mentioned it, you have the, your private equity firms and your strategic players. The pr private equity players are, we call them professional buyers. So they, they may look at... Uh, Typical PE firm, let's say general numbers, a thousand deals in a year, looking to close on a handful, like like two or three. So the prospects of buying a business successfully is a lot more difficult than selling a uh, than than selling a firm. And so when when we work with buyers and sellers, probably eighty percent of the work we do is representing sellers. In other words, so a a business owner comes to us and is looking over their options, maybe not sure what their company is worth in the marketplace, thinking about some transition, and they'll hire us to run a sale process. And that process, again, the, the, the buy side and the sell side, it's the exact same thing, but the other side of the coin, right? So well, when we're representing a seller, uh, we are going to that buyer universe consisting of strategic players, financial players, uh, family offices, and we're making a market for a private company. So we're, we're taking this illiquid asset, which is a private company. We're creating a market for that by going to uh, a lot of potential buyers and creating competition for that asset. I said at the, at the start of this, there are many more buyers than sellers. So, so what benefits a seller is when they have a lot of different buyers interested in their business. That drives value. So when we go to, uh, when we're representing a company in a sale and, and talking with 
50 to 100 maybe or more potential buyers we're trying to create competition for that for that business and when someone comes to us seeking to sell their business you know that process from a timing perspective Laurie, may take six months eight months maybe nine months in general it's it's a process uh, of creating a compelling uh, selling document for the business and going to the market creating competition so when we're out there representing a company for sale we're selling that 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 opportunity to potential buyers again that drives value uh, the best transaction has a a number of buyers that really want to bid up the price and we, we've seen you know we, we we've run a number of sale processes where there are three, four, five, eight, ten buyers who really want a business, and we've seen the the impact that can have uh, for the seller and in driving value. I mean, we we've seen some buyers start at a just pull a number up a twenty million value. Well, we're interested in twenty million. Well, this other buyer may be interested in twenty two million. This other buyer twenty five million. Before you know it, you're talking about a thirty, thirty five, maybe forty million dollar transaction. The benefit of that is for the seller, and it's that competition that can help to drive that value. Yeah, definitely. Is that an auction environment, or that can happen outside of an auction? That's typically, Lori, an auction environment. Uh, some some sellers may seek to talk to one or two potential buyers. We typically recommend, if you're trying to maximize the value in a sale, the auction, you know, the sale process, where it's a it's a uh, very streamlined process where we're seeking to get these buyers to uh, pit against each other and, yeah. and to drive the value. That typically is the auction process. Gotcha, gotcha. What can sink a deal? Why would a buyer walk? When deals don't happen, Lori, uh, probably the biggest reason would be something happened with the seller's earnings. So think, of, think about the pandemic, for example. A seller, 2019, they're they're doing great. First few months of 2020, earnings are very strong, and then the pandemic hits. And if their earnings decline by 20, 30, 50 percent, a buyer may walk from a deal. And so, typically, when a deal doesn't happen, it's something happens with that seller's earnings that maybe weren't foreseen. Maybe they lose a big customer before the transaction. And and the buyer doesn't like that, and that and then maybe the buyer wants a purchase price reduction. The seller says, "I'm not going to lower the price." T typically, that, that that's the number one factor in a deal why it may not happen. Something happens with the buyer's earnings, or maybe maybe something would come up on due diligence no one knew about. And maybe there's a very serious environmental problem with the the business that no one knew about. That can that can impact the deal as well. How about on the seller side? Do you find sometimes that sellers end up having remorse, and so they decide not to close? That can happen, Lori. In in a good uh, succession planning person like you can help to to eliminate that. But yeah, you know, here so here, here's a, here's a story that that talks about that. We were hired by uh, a business owner two brothers who owned a business a number of years ago the, the, their father had started the company he had passed away the 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 
owners were in their mid fifties. They came to said they wanted to sell the business. They hired us. We ran a, a process, got a really good value for for the for the sellers. The the mother was in her mid eighties, and they went to their mother and said, "Hey, mom, great news." We're going to sell the family business. She was outraged. She oh, said, no. you can't sell this business. This is a family business. Your father started the business. What would he say? And so she played the, I guess, the guilt card. And so they decided not to sell. And that was disappointing to everybody. And I think what they, in, in their minds, they'll you know, maybe wait for, you know, for the mother to not be around any longer before they actually sell the business. They really wanted to sell it, but they pulled back at the last minute. But maybe as we think about that, Lori, maybe some succession planning in advance would have been good to uncover that issue before we were six, eight months into the process. But that's yeah. an example of you know, a not so good outcome with that. No, that's that's difficult. It's probably frustrating on all sides and it's so emotionally, you know, fraught type of situation. There's always readiness and readiness is complicated, but there's personal readiness, there's business readiness. So that was a great example where on the on the personal side, there were other decision makers who were not in the room and were not consulted early enough. So right. in that family, every you know, everyone's got different dynamics. It could have been any reason why she didn't they didn't tell her till till towards the end. But in retrospect, obviously that was important. It's good to probably understand who all the decision makers are and what level of influence they have and how to bring them all the way through the process. And that's, you know, for folks like you and me that look to help business owners be successful in this transaction. I'm on the pre-transaction side, you're you're helping get the deal done. But yeah, that's the type of work that I think is really important. And related to that, I was going to ask you, do you ever find a business comes to you and they say, hey, we're ready. And then you go, um, no, your business is not ready. Does that ever happen? That happens a lot, Lori. When you think about what makes a business ready for sale, there are a number of factors involved. Certainly, it's, it's the ownership. It's their, you know, where are they mentally? You know, do they want to stay with the business? Are they ready to sell? Or do they want to keep going? So that, that, that is an issue. But, but secondly, is the company itself. You know, are there things in the company that will hamper its ability to sell? And the, and the answer is that happens a lot of times. There are a lot of, there's a lot of cleanup that companies have to do to not just to sell, but to actually make the company more marketable. And, and the best owners think in advance and they'll think two or three years down the road about what do I need to do with this company, this management team to get this company most ready to sell? And there, I, I do remember one case, doesn't happen that often, by the way. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of times business owners are more reactive. They get to a point and they say, oh, I like to sell this business. I want it sold this year. And then they'll, they'll start thinking about those things. But the best business owners, we think, and the most successful are thinking in advance. And in one case, we had a business owner come to us and they said, uh, this is a, few, a number of years ago, he said, I'd like to sell the business in a couple, two or three years. What are some things I should be doing now to not only facilitate the sale, but to help to get the best value? And so we analyzed that situation and came up with a laundry list of things he should think about. Gave him the list and he went back. He implemented literally every single one. And he came back to us 18 months later and said, okay, I did everything you said and I'm ready to sell. And that is, that's rare. 
I wish it were more common, but that is a very forward thinking business owner. And that sort of mentality, that sort of pre-planning makes a transaction more likely to be successful. Yeah, that's what I see too with my clients that say, I'm not ready now. I want, I'm going to be ready in three to five years. I want to start to get my business ready. What do I need to do? It takes time. So I, I think that's good that you are hitting on that point that if they're coming to you today saying, I want to sell tomorrow, it could be a, a red flag. Something is, is awry, right? Not that they're headed for liquidation sale, but there's something going on there. Right. It takes time. It takes time. What's your favorite thing about doing deals? I said at the outset, I'm a deal junkie. I, I, love, I love the deals. It's high stress. It's high pressure. But you know, we get a lot of satisfaction, Laurie, about you know, working with these business owners who, when they get through a transition, typically it's a once-in-a-lifetime situation for them. And we get a lot, of a lot of satisfaction by helping business owners through very complicated transactions through successful outcomes. And I think I think of one story of a of a business owner. That's a great story. So this 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 is a, this is a guy who was in the construction business, and when the Marcellus um, activity in this region was increasing, he saw an opportunity in the marketplace to start an oil field services business. This is back in the two thousand five six time frame. So he mortgages his house, takes a second mortgage, gets his last $50,000 and starts an oil field services business himself. And he grew that business, very hard worker. So he grows the business over the next seven, eight, nine years to over hundred employees, hires us to run a sale process. And we successfully sell his company to a strategic buyer for tens of millions of dollars. This guy, he's ecstatic. He, he, he has created a, a generational wealth opportunity for he and his family. And the, the, the satisfaction that we get of being part of that, I mean, this is a, this is a very, this is a life-changing event for him and his family. We played a big role in that. And, and the satisfaction we got from helping him go from yeah, he, he had very little money when he started his company. He took a big risk, classic entrepreneur, and ended up selling his company again for a lot of money seven, eight, nine years later. And we played a big role, just got a tremendous amount of satisfaction. So that is really, when, when we do that, when it, when it works like that, Obviously, the business owner is happy. We're happy as well. We're happy right. for them. And, and the story that we, everything we learned through that process, working with him, getting to know him, getting to know his family, it, it's, uh, it's invaluable. And it, again, it's very gratifying also. Oh, that's great. So we, we talked about a lot today, but is there anything else you wanted to share that I didn't ask you? I, I think, Lori, um, what I, just what I'd like to say, you know, we've been through with this pandemic, a really a shock to the, the whole economy, a shock to private businesses. And I just I wanted to say that 2021 and beyond is we, we see a very bright light at the end of this tunnel. People have hunkered down. We, we've seen businesses really pivot and change their their business model. As, as a way to com combat the, the coronavirus, the pandemic. 
and they and they've improved their business beyond what they ever thought. And so some business owners we're working with are saying, you know, this this pandemic was awful, was horrible, but the silver lining is that in, instead of yeah, you know, they changed their business model. And in one case, that the business owner who had a clothing manufacturer who was selling through the retail channel, you know, pandemic hits, the, the retail customers, you know, some closed temporarily, some closed permanently, pivot their business model to an, an e-commerce strategy. And it's like, wow, and, and, they're, and they're doing better now. So it, it's the entrepreneur, it's this, um, this hard work that I see, the uh, people who are willing to take a risk to take a chance and overcome these the, the the pandemic with great success, and so I think that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing the businesses fighting back, finding ways to make money again, having to be more creative, but just really improving the, the, their businesses, uh, and all with a the thought of some time down the road, having that American dream, this once in a lifetime generational wealth creation opportunity that, that they, they'd like to grab. And you're helping to make that happen. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have any favorite quotes that you can share on entrepreneurship or leadership? I think the one quote, I don't know who said it, uh, Lori, but the quote goes something like, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, and I think that uh, you know, in our business here at Confluence, we work very hard. We, we see these entrepreneurs, these classic entrepreneurs working very, very hard. And there's no, there's no substitute for that. Hard work over time will yield great results. And so that quote, that hits home with me. Yeah, definitely. If people want to find you, Dave, how do they find you online? So the, our website, Laurie, is uh, confluenceadvisors.com. We, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, we have a LinkedIn page. We have a Facebook page, but mostly our website page at confluenceadvisors.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave, for spending your time with me today and talking about being a deal junkie <laughs> and how businesses can really benefit by thinking ahead and how they can create value and work with a firm like yours to take it to the next level and create that wealth for their family for generations to come. So thank you. Lori, again, thanks so much for asking me. Really enjoyed it today. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, the potential net proceeds of a transaction, and your financial needs after you leave the business, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand these numbers, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Take the next step by requesting an initial meeting to begin planning for your business transition and strategic exit today. Request a call with me by visiting smalldotbig.com. That's smalldotbig.com. I look forward to speaking with you.